0: Now, as we begin our study of Genesis chapter 23, we'll study verses 1 to 9 of Genesis 23. And the first part of the chapter is about the death of Sarah. And the last part, negotiations about the burial of Sarah and the purchase of a burial plot. However, I'd like to pause just at the beginning of this lesson to remind ourselves as to why we study the Old Testament and why we study these kinds of passages of the Old Testament these narratives, historical narratives and incidents in the lives of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Why do we do this? Because some people think the Old Testament is irrelevant. It should be put away and abolished. And others think it's merely some background and historical factual information and not anything applicable to us. However, that's not the way the apostles, the holy apostles... Of the New Testament and the Lord Jesus, that's not the way they looked at it. Amen. Because what the apostles taught in the New Testament is what Jesus taught them. Correct? Yep. And so in First Corinthians, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, he tells us whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance, and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in earlier times, written for our instruction, so that through perseverance, our perseverance, and encouragement deriving from the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope to pursue the things of this life and all of the afflictions and trials of this life for the life to come. The hope of eternal life. That's what he tells us in Romans 15:4. Furthermore, in Romans chapter 4, specifically in the life of Abraham, why are these things written? Romans 4, Romans 4:22, 4, 22, 22 to 25. Romans 4:22. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions, and was raised because of our justification. When the scripture says in Genesis fifteen six and quoted in other places, that it was reckoned to him as righteousness to Abraham, why was it written? Not for the sake of Abraham only, he says in verse 23, but for our sake also, verse 24, to whom it will be reckoned. Right. Abraham is an example and the paradigm, the model for us to know how we can be right before God or reckoned righteous before God. And just as Abraham believed in Christ, who died and rose again for his sins and for his justification and forgiveness. In the same way, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Abraham looked forward to the coming of Christ, and then we look back to the first coming of Christ and forward to the second coming of Christ. This is why it's written about Abraham. In First Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, verse six, when the horrible things of the Old Testament are written, when those evil events are recorded and evil people are recorded, why? Why are the evil incidents recorded in the Old Testament? It's also for our benefit. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, 10, verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also crave. We should not crave evil things as they also crave. Now they happen in the past as examples for us, examples of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil, so that we pursue the good and the right, the righteous, the light, that which is godly and reject everything else that is contrary to the things of God. And then 1 Corinthians 10:11, 10, 10:11. 11, 10, 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. He tells us in verse 11 that the incidents of the Old Testament happen as examples for us and for our instruction. That's why they are written. That's why they are recorded. They are recorded for future subsequent generations, including us, because the ends of the ages have come upon us. Then in verses 12 and 13, he puts us in our place in that he's making sure we stay humble When we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because he says, verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Why? Because when we read about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the many others of the Old Testament, it's easy for us to well up with pride. It's easy for uh, our pride to be so strong and for us to think and that we are superior to them, and that we would never, ever do what they did. We would never behave as they behaved. We would never say or do the things that they did. No, no, we're better than that. We are superior to them. We would never succumb to the same temptations as they did. He's telling us, we better watch out, not think of that. And why? Because of verse 13. Because the temptations that they faced are common to man. They're common to us. They're common to every generation, to every nation. They're common to male and female alike, young and old alike, poor and rich alike. The temptations that face us as humans, made in the image of God, is going to be the same or common throughout all generations, throughout all nations, throughout every person. It doesn't matter who he is or who she is. It doesn't matter. These are common. So, in the same way, God is faithful to help us overcome them. Just as He was faithful to Abraham and Sarah and the many others, the same way He'll be faithful to us and see us through those trials, see us through those temptations, so that we come out on the outside, on the other side, (coughs) enduring it and escaping it, and ultimately for our eternal life. Right. Alright? So these are just a few examples. We could cite many others as justification for why we study the pages of the Old Testament the way we do. We must do so because it is for our benefit in these ways. Now back to Genesis 23. 23, we'll start at verse 1. This at the beginning is the death of Sarah and Abraham's mourning for her death, and then what he does initially to secure a burial plot for her. This chapter is difficult to divide. It's all one narrative. So for the sake of time, we'll just do verses 1 to 9, and then in the next hour, we'll finish the chapter. Chapter 23, verse 1. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Verse 1. Sarah lived to be 127 years of age. Her whole life, 127 years. We know from chapter 17, verse 17... 1717, that the difference between Abraham and Sarah was 10 years. 1717 says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? The difference was 10 years. So that means that Abraham was 137 years old when Sarah died at age 127. And this would also mean that Isaac, their son, their one and only son between the two of them, was 37 years old. Right. Because he was born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. So Abraham's 137, Isaac is 37, and here Sarah dies at age 127. They are, Abraham and Sarah, we will see later with Abraham, they live a full and happy life Before the Lord. Of course, uh, from their conversion onwards, but God has blessed them with a long, full, and happy life living in Christ, in the things of the Lord. Then, verse 2 it says, And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. She dies in this city that has two names, and actually it has three names, which another name will be mentioned um, in verse 19. Notice, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. These are the three names associated with this city or town, uh, Kiriath, Arba, Hebron, and Mamre. Kiriath Arba according to Joshua 14:15 according to Joshua 14:15 we have why it is called Kiriath Arba the word Kiriath by the way Kiriath means city of city of so Arba is the name of an individual Joshua 14:15 now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. 1415. It's called Kiriath Arba or City of Arba or Town of Arba because Arba was the greatest man and this city was named after him, and he was among the Anakim. And who are the Anakim? Notice fifteen thirteen. Joshua fifteen thirteen. Now he gave to Caleb the son of Jephunneh a portion among the sons of Judah according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak that is Hebron. So Kiriath Arba was the father of Anak and then Anak, his son, had many descendants and they were known as the Anakim. And who are the Anakim. The Anakim were among uh, a few of the names given to the giants of the land in the land of Canaan. The giants of the land of Canaan who were later in the time of Joshua and then finally in the time of David to be killed and defeated. In the time of Joshua and then in the time of David defeated. These were the ones that the 10 of the 12 spies... They were afraid of them because they said these are giants. We cannot defeat them. But Caleb and Joshua believed that they could defeat them. And Caleb was given that area and even this town as an inheritance. But earlier it belonged to the Canaanites. The Canaanites and to the giants. So this area and this town especially belongs to the giants. And back to Genesis 23. It's in the land of Canaan. Now, this we know Abraham has been living in the land of Canaan. He says so in verse 4 I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. The land of Canaan is a land of paganism, it's a land of idolatry, it's a land of immorality. It's not a land of godliness and righteousness, it's not a land of the gospel. Abraham is there as a foreigner or a sojourner among the people of the land. So he, being an oddity in the land, he has to do his best to manage with the people of the land. Which is about what he is about to do after he mourns for Sarah in the land of Canaan. We'll speak more of what Canaan is and represents in a moment. So verse 2 In this land, he has to go to mourn for, he goes and mourns for Sarah and to weep for her. He mourns and weeps for her. Now, did Abraham mourn and weep for Sarah out of unbelief, out of unbelief, out of bitterness, out of hostility toward God? Or did he mourn and weep for Sarah? out of a genuine love and concern for her, and a genuine belief and hope in the afterlife. Right. In what way did he do it? I believe he did it in the latter way. That is, he truly cared for Sarah, truly loved her. He loved his own wife as himself. As it says in uh, Ephesians 5:28 and 29, he loved his own neighbor as himself, and his closest neighbor was his own wife, Sarah, And so he loved her until the end. So, of course, he would miss her and be grieving at that separation. Right? The Bible teaches that we are to be married until death separates us. And this he did until the very end of her life. He loved her and he was devoted to her until the end of life. Even though they went through many trials. And even though he could have divorced her, he did not do that. He remained with her until her death and genuinely had a love for her until her death. Now, are we to mourn and weep whenever our own dead are gone? Well, yeah, yes. Sure. Yes, we are. It is, not to, it is not for us to be, in a sense, or so, as some people look at it, super spiritual and never cry, never mourn, never weep, even if we lose our loved ones. That's not the case at all. It's not super spiritual to withhold your tears, withhold mourning when you lose a loved one. No, it is right and good in the right sense if we are truly missing them as having loved them during life and if we are thinking about the life to come and putting our hope in that when we contemplate what death is, not only death with our loved one, but what death is to all humanity in relation to God. when we are contemplating and thinking about those things, then it is right and good. For example, in Genesis 51 to 14, in Genesis 51 to14, there Jacob or Israel, he dies, and Joseph and the people, they mourn and weep over his death. Certainly they did not do that in unbelief. They did not do this in bitterness and hostility toward God. They did it because they missed Him, they loved Him, and they were weeping and mourning for that reason. But also they were thinking about death and what death's consequences are to all of us. And they were thinking in terms of the afterlife. This is what Joseph did in Genesis chapter 50, 1 to 14. Furthermore, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, 2 Samuel chapter 1, 17 to 27, 2 Samuel 1, 17 to 27, David laments, he laments the death of both Jonathan and Saul. Yeah. Now, Jonathan was his beloved friend. They made a covenant and Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. The second greatest commandment, Jonathan practiced that toward David, and David had a mutual love toward Jonathan. So they were believers and best friends, but not David and Saul, no. not David and Saul. And yet the song or the dirge of 2 Samuel 1, 17 to 27, David even mourns over the death of Saul because he considered and contemplated Saul's life, even though he behaved wickedly against David, he contemplated and thought about Saul's life and Saul's death and the consequences of Saul's sins after death. He thought about what Saul did in terms of good, but also in terms of evil and the afterlife in relation to Saul, which is what we should do too. When wicked people die, we have to also think about The consequences of that wicked person's life and death in the afterlife, in the life to come. So that's all right and good for us to do. And then also we have this example in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, remember Stephen was put to death by stoning by unbelieving Jews, right? The unbelieving Jews put this one Jew, Stephen, to death. And he was a believer. Stephen was a believer. Look at Acts chapter 8, verse 2. Acts chapter 8, verse 2 says, And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. These are devout men. So Luke is not disparaging what these devout men are about to do. He's not disparaging it. He's complimenting it. He's teaching us that they are an example for us. They buried Stephen, which is right and good, and then they made loud lamentation over him. They wept aloud over the death of Stephen. Same for us. When we lose our loved ones, and even when we lose our enemies, in a way, we should weep over their death. Thinking about their own life and death. Thinking about death in general. And thinking about eternal issues. This should come to our mind. Whenever someone dies. However it does not end there. Look at Genesis. 23 verse 3. 23 3. 23, 3 says. Then Abraham rose from before his dead. And spoke to the sons of Heth. Saying. Firstly let's just. Mention briefly who are these sons of Heth. From chapter 10, verse 15, chapter 10, verse 15, we gather from there that Heth was most likely the second born of Canaan. Second born of Canaan. Remember, uh, of the sons of Noah, Noah had three sons. Ham was one of them, and then one of Ham's sons was Canaan. And then Canaan's son, Gen- Genesis 10, 15, was Sidon, the firstborn, and then Heth after that. So likely the secondborn of Canaan, who was the son of Ham. This was who Heth was. So Heth lived in this land of Canaan because that land was first dwelt by Canaan, and then Heth became one of the numerous um, offspring of Canaan in that land. So, they are living in that land known as the land of Canaan. He approaches this one group or one tribe called the sons of Heth. But before he approaches them, what does he do? He rises before his dead. Right. Now, twice it says his dead, correct? Um, It it says it there, and then in verse um, 4, my dead, and then in actually in verse 6 also says, your dead, bury your dead. (coughs) So this dead person belongs to Abraham, and Abraham is obligated to care for his dead in the proper way. This dead wife is Abraham's wife and whether it's wife or any other person in the family, when someone dies, those who are the survivors are obligated to properly take care of one's own dead. It's not for the the distant relatives. It's not for the strangers. It's not for the state. It's not for anybody else. It is for one's own loved ones, surviving loved ones, to care for one's own dead. The dead person... Even though it has now been separated from you, is not separated immediately, but you must properly care for the last rites or rituals to care for your dead, before you can keep your dead relative out of your sight. It is one's own obligation. It says in verse um, three: "His dead." In verse four, "My dead." So he is handling it the way he should, owning up to his own responsibility. Then verse 3, after he mourns and weeps, he rises, he gets up. It does not tell us the period of mourning and weeping that Abraham practiced here. It doesn't say, but likely it was not long because he needed to bury her. So at least the initial stage of mourning and weeping was likely sooner than three or four days. Right? It was likely very soon. He mourns and weeps in this initial period but then he realizes that Sarah's corpse has to be buried. Okay? Now, why is he rising? And why is he practicing burial? I believe because he believed in resurrection. He knows that It's time to bury her, not to burn her, which we'll speak of in just a moment. He knows it's time to bury her and not to burn her. So, why does he know he needs to bury her? First question. Why does he know he needs to bury her? John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 24. What did Abraham know and what did... All of the believers of the Old Testament know, and even many unbelievers, and what did even the common people, even a common woman know? Before the resurrection of Christ, what did they all know about death and resurrection? Did they know about it? They certainly did. And our first example is John chapter 11 verse 24. 11:24. You remember, Lazarus has died and he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Then Jesus approaches um, the scene where the death has occurred and Lazarus has already been uh, dead. So verse 24, Martha said to him, to Christ, John 11:24, 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha says that. Yep. Martha A common woman, before the resurrection of Christ, says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Well, how does she know that? Because it's taught throughout the Old Testament. And even Abraham believed it. And and many others, they believed it. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And of course she says yes. So Christ, He is the object of faith for those who believe in resurrection and those who receive eternal life and know that on the day, on the last day, on the day of judgment, they shall rise from the dead immortally because Christ is the object of their faith. Just as Christ will rise from the dead, they will rise from the dead to eternal life. This is why Jesus said in John 14:19, John 14:19, because I live, you shall live also. Because I live, you shall live also, John 14:19. Furthermore, in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, you may say, well did Abraham know all this? Maybe Martha knew it because Jesus taught her, but did Abraham know all of this? Yes, indeed, He did. We'll see two places that prove that. The first is John chapter 8. In verses 48 to 59, we have Jesus dialoguing and debating the Jews who are denying His claims. They are denying and rejecting His claims. And He's saying that Abraham did not behave this way. Abraham did not behave this way. We pick it up at verse 56. 856 Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad The Jews therefore said to him You are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham Jesus said to them Truly truly I say to you before Abraham was born I am Therefore they picked, picked up stones to throw at him but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple Christ says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Yeah. He saw it and was glad. Well, what was the day that he saw? What was it about Christ that he believed? Well, we could say many things. No doubt. And we will see from Hebrews 11, it included definitely resurrection from the dead. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, resurrection from the dead. We'll read Hebrews 11:17. Hebrews 11:17 to 19. 11:17 to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, "In Isaac your descendants shall be called." He considered That's Abraham. Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham considered, he believed that God is able to raise men up from the dead. So he believed in the resurrection of the dead. Abraham did. And when he received Isaac back, because Isaac was not ultimately slain on the altar, he received him back. He received him back as a type or a parable uh, illustration of ultimate resurrection based on the resurrection of Christ that all the faithful who believe in Christ will also be raised up just as Christ was raised immortally. This was Abraham's faith. He believed in this. This is why I believe he rose up before his dead And this is also why He buried Sarah as a type or symbol, as a way of saying, I put my hope in resurrection, not in cremation, not in burning. Because those who are burned are typifying, whether they admit it or not, they are typifying eternal burning, eternal fire, in the lake of fire where the bodies are burned in the lake of fire. And why do we say this? Because the faithful throughout the Scriptures do not bury their own... uh, They they don't uh, burn their own dead. The faithful in the Scriptures do not burn their own dead. That does not happen to the faithful and when they are expressing their faith. But when... Burning or cremation happens in the, in the Bible. It happens because wicked people are being punished. Wicked people are being punished. And when I said that this is a symbol of the eternal fire, remember what Jude says in Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed by what? Fire and brimstone, right? Fire and sulfur. That's how they were destroyed. So they were burned just like that, instantly by a miracle of God from heaven. So if they're burning on the earth is a symbol of eternal punishment, the eternal fire, then why should we practice burning or cremating our dead? No, we should not do that. In fact, the opposite is the practice of Scripture. We should bury our dead if we have faith in the eternal life to come, in the resurrected life to come. Furthermore, only wicked people are burned in the Bible. Only wicked people are burned in the Bible. We have several examples. Genesis 38, 24. Genesis 38, 24. The penalty that Judah announces to one who has practiced fornication is that she should be burned. The penalty for practicing fornication in Genesis thirty-eight twenty-four is that she should be burned. In Leviticus 21, verse 9, Leviticus 21, verse 9, if a priest's daughter practices fornication, she also was to be burned. Leviticus 21, verse 9. In Joshua chapter 7, in Joshua 7 and verse 25, uh, Achan, who rebelled, Against the command of God, when they conquered Jericho, Achan and his family, who were under a curse for their disobedience, they also were burned. Yes, they were stoned to death, but they were then burned. They were burned as a punishment for the sin committed. In Judges, Judges chapter 14, Judges chapter uh, 14, verse 15 and in 15 verse 6 14:15 15, and 15:6 15, the penalty that the Philistines want to inflict on the wife of Samson for her not helping them or for her causing trouble to them the Philistines is to burn her to put her to death by burning her and not only did she get burned to death, but her father was by the time we reach Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. They were put to death in that way. Well, if this is the case that wicked people or those that are uh, not deserving because of their actions a proper burial are put to death that way, then the Bible is, I think, clearly indicating that burial is a practice for the believer, just as Abraham and the many other believers of the Old Testament and the New Testament practiced. Let's now return to Genesis 23. 23, verse 4. 23, verse 4. What does Abraham say? He's speaking to the sons of Heth, the inhabitants of, of the city. He says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He calls himself a stranger and a sojourner among them. Why does he do so? I think he does so for the immediate reason, but also for uh, a future or ultimate reason. The immediate reason is he's trying to understand or teach his hearers, the sons of Heth, That he has a proper place in their society. He knows that he's not a king. He knows that he's not the king or the mayor of, of the city. He's not anything like that. So he's understanding his humble place among them. That he is dependent upon them. So he calls himself a stranger and a sojourner among them. So that as he approaches them with a request. A request for the first place and the only place that he would ever own in the land of Canaan throughout his life. Right? God promised him the land of Canaan, but he never owned it, and he only, only owned this cave for a burial site. That was the only place he owned for all of his life. And why does he approach them? Because he has to understand, or make them understand, I realize who I am, I don't own this land, and so I'm approaching you in humility with my request, see, after all, I have my dead wife here and I want to bury her. So that's his first reason. But I think the second reason he calls himself a stranger and sojourner has to do with his ultimate belief that he's not there to conquer the land of Canaan. Abraham is not there as... A, a nomad or dweller in the land of Canaan in order to eventually conquer the land of Canaan. That's not his purpose. His purpose is more eternal. His purpose is to signify the life to come, to live as a stranger and sojourner on the earth because his hope is the life to come. Canaan signifies and illustrates the life to come. Yes, Abraham believed in heaven. He believed in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. He believed in eternal life. He was not, Abraham was not living for this world. He did not think, he did not believe that once we die, that's all. He did not believe like that. Nor was he uh, unclear, nor was he hazy and cloudy in what he thought of the afterlife. He knew the promises of God for the afterlife. Even in regards to this land of Canaan and what his status was in the land of Canaan. Let's prove that. Let's prove that Abraham knew that the land of Canaan was only a foretaste of heaven and the eternal heavens and earth in which he would dwell. Firstly, Genesis chapter 47, verse 9. Genesis 47, verse 9. By this point, we're reading about Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and then now Jacob. And notice what Jacob says to Pharaoh about who he is. About who he is. Genesis 47, verse 9. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. Now, by this point, Jacob had lived 130 years. He will live to be 147. In the case of Isaac, his father, Isaac lived to be 180 and Abraham lived to be 175. This is what he means, that his life has not even reached the lifespan of Isaac and Abraham. But notice what he calls his 130 years. He calls them sojourning, my sojourning. Well, who's a stranger, an alien, and a soldier, and a pilgrim? Who is that but one who lives in a foreign land? A land that's not your birthplace, your native place, right? A land whose citizenship you don't have, right? That's when you call yourself an alien, a stranger, a sojourner, a pilgrim, correct? Right. But Jacob was born in the land of Canaan. In fact, his uh, his father Isaac was born in the land of Canaan. Abraham was the only one who could say, I was not born here in the land of Canaan. But not Abraham's descendants. They all were born there. In terms of the book of Genesis, they were born there. Correct? With the exception of Joseph's two sons who were born in the land of Egypt. But otherwise, generally speaking, they were all native born to the land of Canaan. And here, yet, Jacob calls himself a sojourner. My sojourning. Not only does he call it a sojourn, but he says he has lived few and unpleasant a, a few and an unpleasant life there in Canaan. Few and unpleasant? Now he did go through some trials, but he was immensely blessed as well, was he not? Yes. Yet he doesn't characterize his life in terms of his blessing. To Pharaoh, he characterizes his life as being few in years and unpleasant or evil. Unpleasant and evil. Why? Because he's thinking and talking in relation to the life to come. The life to come. uh, Leviticus, Leviticus 25, 23. Leviticus chapter 25, 23. Now, this is hundreds of years later. Moses is teaching the people in the land, uh, in the desert, in, uh, by Sinai, at Sinai. The book, the book of Leviticus was written as a book composed at the time of the Mount Sinai incident, when the people of Israel departed Egypt and lived at Sinai for a while. And notice what Moses tells the people of Israel to do once they get into Canaan. They're not there yet, but once they get there, what they're supposed to do. Leviticus 25, 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. You are aliens and sojourners with me. Which means, when God dwells among the people of Israel, and the people of Israel live in the land of Canaan, the aliens and sojourners are the people of Israel. Even though they will be given that land as an inheritance, they will conquer it, and God will dwell among them. And yet, He says, You are aliens and sojourners with Me on the earth in the land of Canaan though it is their inheritance. They will own it. They will have citizenship in it. Why does he call it? Why does he call them aliens and sojourners? Because the land of Canaan typifies the life to come. It's a type and a shadow of the life to come. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. 11 and we'll start at verse 13 Actually, let's begin at verse 8. Hebrews 11:8. Hebrews 11:8. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Why? Why did God make him live in tents like that? For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What city is that? That's a future heavenly city, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 11, by faith even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. Without receiving the promises. What does that mean? They did receive them in that they heard them. They received them and they believed in them, right? They received them in that sense, but that's not what he means in verse 13. In verse 13 he means they did not receive the actual fulfillment of those promises in the full sense. They did not receive it. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, meaning the distance of eternal life, And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Is that not what Abraham said of himself in Genesis 23-4? Is that not what Jacob said of himself in Genesis 47-9? And we find other places throughout the Old Testament where the patriarchs identify themselves as aliens and sojourners and pilgrims. So they do confess. They confess to other people that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. So when they call themselves by these names, what do they indicate? What are they confessing? Verses 14 to 16 say, For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. In verse 15, the many afflictions that Abraham Isaac and Jacob experienced. Could they not have returned to a previous land? Right? They could have returned from Canaan to Haran, or from Haran back to Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of Babylon. Right? They could have returned like that. Remember in chapter 24 of Genesis, when the servant of Abraham is looking for a wife for Isaac, he wonders, Well, if the woman in Haran that I find doesn't want to come to Canaan, shall I take Isaac out of Canaan back to Haran? And Abraham basically says, No way, Jose. You better not let that happen. Right? He says that in chapter 24, that you better not let that happen. God will give you success, and He will send His angel ahead of you to give you success, so that you will not have to do that, but you better not do that. and You better swear to me that you're going to not do that, but bring her from there. So that's what he means in verse 15. That if they wanted to return back, they would have have. Would have had opportunity to return. So, why did they stay in a state of uncertainty and in a state of affliction, in a state of nomadic life? Why did they remain that way? Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, they wanted the better country. They wanted the heavenly country. They wanted the heavenly city. And this is why God was pleased with them and not ashamed to be called their God. Because they lived for the life to come. They lived for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is what Abraham lived for. This is why he behaves this way. Next, let's turn to verses 5 to nine, verses 5 to 9. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So, he approaches them. He approaches them with his requests. And the sons of Heth are very obliging. They're very courteous in their response. They call him my Lord. They recognize him, so they respect him. He respects them and they respect him. They call him a mighty prince or prince of God. Your footnote might say, literally it says prince of God. Prince of God, so mighty prince or prince of God among us, which means that he has established, maintained a good testimony among them. And then they say, find the best place, the choices yeah. of our graves. Find a good place like that. And notice, they also keep graves. Yeah. They also keep graves, which among the peoples of the earth, there are some nations or peoples of the earth that practice burial even though they're not Christians. Others, of course, they burn their dead. but And others of them bury their dead. So yeah, bur- bury in terms of Uh, embalming the corpse and putting it in a safe place to let it deteriorate naturally. So they, they have some remnant of true belief in their practice, some remnant of it, which reminds us of the doctrine of common grace. God has endowed the human heart, whether Christian or not, endowed the human heart with certain truths, with certain knowledge, with certain morality, the knowledge of right and wrong and what they should do, who God is, who they are, this life, the life to come, life and death. All of these things have been taught to them by the law of God written on the heart. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 clearly teaches this. And even Romans 1, 18 to 23, they, these verses clearly teach this doctrine that each of us has that not that each of us acts in accordance with it properly at all times but we do have it and we see glimpses of it here or there in human behavior even among wicked people unbelievers even idolaters have remnants of that in their daily life and that's what they have they acknowledge his virtues and they give him this option of the choices of their graves. A couple of things here. One, he's called uh, a mighty prince. This shows us that he has been establishing a reputation among them by living a godly life. We can see this by no- noticing in chapter chapter 14, um, excuse me, not chapter 14, um, chapter 20, verse 7. Chapter 20, verse 7. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God declares to Abimelech, who lives in the land of Canaan, he's a Philistine, but lives in the land of Canaan, that Abraham is a prophet, a prophet of God. He belongs to God and he's a righteous prophet of God. In chapter 21 in chapter 21 verse 22, 21:22 22, Abimelech says this to Abraham. Now it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol the commander of his army spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. God is with you in all that you do. Abraham has verbally this reputation announced about him, but also in the way he's living his life, it's evident among the pagan people that God has blessed him, God is with him in the way he lives, the way he interacts with people, how godly he is. They know all of this. And they see also the material blessings that God has given to Abraham. So because of all of this, God has influenced these pagans, these idolaters, sons of Heth, to be congenial to Abraham, to treat him properly with respect. And then Abraham treats them with respect. Verse 7. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. So they are respectful toward him and he is respectful toward them. We'll speak more of his respect toward them in the next hour. Then verses 8 and 9, 8 and 9, Ephron, Ephron, the the son of Zohar, he has a field and he has a cave in that field. Presumably, Ephron was very wealthy and Ephron was not there at the time or Ephron was not The one to approach directly, it would be better to go to the uh, humble means, that is, to go to the gate of the city or wherever there would be negotiations that take place, present your need, and then request the people who know Ephron to approach Ephron instead of Abraham going directly to Ephron. It's an indirect way of approaching the issue and not... Going straight to Ephron in a brazen way and in a proud way. He's trying to handle it in the proper way according to the situation that he had to deal with. That's why he says in verse 8, he requests these sons of Heth to um, approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me. Approach him for me. I have this petition. You know my reputation. Many of you have spoken about it. So now please go and approach Ephron so that Ephron can give it some credibility when people familiar with Ephron can approach him with the request. Then verse 9, he owns a field, but he wants a cave in the field that's at the end of the field. Why this cave and why at the end of the field? Probably because he wanted to secure a location where he and Sarah and others in the future because we know by the end of the book of Genesis Jacob is buried there and Rachel is buried there Leah is buried there they're all buried there that he wanted a sufficient burial site away from the rest of the people for his own family and this I think is illustrative or indicative of a separation in the life to come that Yes, we all die, um, young, young and old, believer and unbeliever, it doesn't matter, we, we will all die. So death is common to all of us because of sin, but the burial separate from the unbelievers was there to indicate that their hope upon death is a different hope and a different belief than the wicked. And they don't want to be associated with the wicked in their death. They want a separation. So probably this is the reason why he wanted this specific place away from where everybody else among the Canaanites would be buried. And further in verse 9, he says, For the full price let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. He wants to give Ephron what he deserves because it's his property. So he's trying to be honest and forthright. In his dealings. He's not trying to have a shady deal. He wants to do it right. Give Ephron what is um, the value of that land. The value of that cave. At that part. Give him the full price. So that. And also do it in the presence of everyone. So that there are witnesses. This is not a secret and dark deal. It is in the presence of everyone. With a transparent and honest approach to the matter. This is how Abraham is going to approach it. And we'll see some more about that in the next hour. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.